0: Hi, this is Kevin Lindsay. Welcome to Systems and Cybernetics. Along with my co-host, Tom Schult, I have the privilege of talking to amazing systems thinkers here on the New Books Network. Today, I'm excited to be in conversation with Sean Kelly about his new book, Becoming Gaia, on the threshold of planetary initiation, published by Integral Imprint. Sean Kelly is a professor of philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies, or CIIS. He is the author of Coming Home, The Birth and Transformation of the Planetary Era, co-editor of The Variety of Integral Ecologies, Nature, Culture, and Knowledge in the Planetary Era, and co-translator of Edgar Moran's Homeland Earth, A Manifesto for the New Millennium. Welcome, Sean. I'm glad to be in conversation with you.
1: Oh, delighted to be here, Kevin.
0: So, before we jump into the heart of the book, um... There was something that I, I forgot to, to mention. As we were corresponding uh, about doing this this podcast, we discovered a couple of things, or I discovered a couple of things about you. First of all, you're a fellow Canadian, so yay to that. And and also, um, you told me about this amazing adventure you had, uh, I think, 49, 48, 49 years ago when you Hitchhiked across Canada, and what an interesting time to to do that! I mean, what what did that give you? What did that teach you about life? And, and did that like turn you on to this area of 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 study that you've pursued and and are now an
1: expert in? Oh well, <clears throat> it was certainly an adventure, and uh, although I didn't know it at, at the time, it was my uh, first taste uh, of uh, the counterculture and. Uh, of the kinds of ideas and values that, uh, the Bay area, of course, was a, uh, an epicenter for still is at the time. I knew nothing of it at the time I was 16 and, but, um, yeah, it was, it was great fun. Uh, it was still safe to hitchhike then, uh, included some freight trains along the way. And yeah, <laughs> so what it taught me, what did it teach me that I could be on my own for two and a half months, leaving home with $40 in my pocket and, uh, you know, come, Come back in one piece and uh, learned how to beg for my food and, and other things as well. Sleep in parks and
0: <laughs> it was that, great. Fun. That's an adventure. Would you do it again? I guess that's the question.
1: Oh, no, definitely not. Not not unless <laughs> I had to. But I'm glad I did it then.
0: <laughs> so when we get these conversations going, we like to ask authors really kind of what got them into their their current line of work, if you will. And um, most often, the authors that I talk to are systems thinkers, they're authors of systems thinking books. Now, this book, you might not characterize as a systems book, or or maybe you do. Um, But really, my takeaway from reading it was that um, we really can't have a decent conversation about systems thinking and applying systems thinking without really exploring consciousness and a lot of the topics that you bring up in the book are just quite profound for me and as i reflect on a lot of the systems conversations i've had with with authors i kind of feel like consciousness was a was a missing piece from, from those conversations. So, the question normally is, what got you into systems thinking? But instead, I think I'll ask, you know, what you, what got you into really exploring consciousness and led you into this particular line of inquiry? And what relationship do you see uh, this area having like, with systems thinking?
1: Mm, what a great question. Yeah, well, um, gee, you know, as a, uh, a child, I, I, I thought that I was destined to, uh, enter this, what I really wanted to do was enter the space program <laughs> maybe. Um, and, uh, I was really drawn to the sciences. This is, you know, during the, the Apollo missions and so on. But then, um, when I was 13, I, uh, I had a unintentional initiation into uh, the counterculture through uh, through LSD actually and that completely that gave me a direct experience of a whole different kind of consciousness uh, which I had experienced in my own way um, and you know <laughs> from very early age and have have since then as well, but gave me a direct experience of of the world as intrinsically alive and in, in all of its dimensions that there is no, there is no place on earth, no part of this earth that is not, uh, in some sense alive and, and infused with a kind of numinous sacred energy. I didn't know to call it that at the time I was only 13, but that, that shifted my tra- what might have been my trajectory, uh, more in the direction of consciousness, and uh, culture, and so on. So I, I did my um, undergraduate work in English literature, and then comparative religion. Uh, and um, throughout that focused on uh, uh, Jungian psychology, uh, to begin with. So I was I had a kind of conversion to depth psychology at Jung in particular. Um, and I uh, One of the things that really appealed to me about Jung was not only his recognition, his affirmation of the intrinsic mystery of consciousness and the the uh, sacred character of consciousness and the importance of of the sacred of spirituality, but he was guided by this intuition of wholeness that um, he spoke of in terms of the self or individuation, the, the, path of, the path of individuation as the actualization of wholeness. Now, Jung also you know, was in dialogue with um, <clears throat> Wolfgang Pauli, one of the founders of quantum physics. So, he, Jung was also one of the pioneers in making this link between the realm of consciousness, the psyche, the sacred on the one hand, and leading edge of science. And for Jung, it was particularly physics. But if you look at Jung's um, meta psychology, his uh, his model of the psyche, it's actually a, a very systems friendly view of the psyche. That uh, where um, first of all, the the psyche is viewed as a uh, an organic whole uh, that is constituted by uh, ongoing dynamic relationships between the parts. In a kind of circular feedback, particularly between conscious and unconscious, or and the individual and and the collective, and so on. Um, so that was, in a sense, my first <clears throat> initiation into that way of thinking was through Jung. Uh, and um, in my graduate studies, I discovered uh, the philosophy of Hegel, who is arguably the, I think, the most systems-oriented philosopher ever um his, uh, his 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 system, I mean he talks about the system all the time is is one that um, is founded for instance, on the principle of self-organization of uh, the the concept of the whole or the absolute which is nothing other than the process of the cosmos and the divine self-organizing itself uh, and, um, uh, to actualize its, its inherent potentials. So Hegel and Jung became my two sort of mentors there. And, um, when I was working on my dissertation on Hegel and Jung, I discovered the French thinker Edgar Morin, Edgar Morin, who uh, turned 100 this year and Morin, you know, uh, and I got a grant to study with him in Paris uh, in 1986-87. Uh, but um, So he became one of my mentors. And, and to my mind, he is the most important systems thinker of the 20th century and and arguably will continue to be so in, in this century. Um, so, you know, Morin's view of systems is um, it, it's a kind of meta view. I mean, he draws from... Cybernetics from general systems theory, from ecology, <clears throat> and um, proposes certain key principles of thinking of systems, like um, the dialogical principle or recursivity, the, the holographic principle, uh, and so on. Um, so, by the time that I finished my doctoral work, that you know this was my my foundation, uh, and. Um, let me see now if there's one thing I want to add to this. Maybe that's enough for now, and I'll, I'll see whether you want to take it in the yeah, new direction. Yeah, it's
0: a it's actually a great foundation for the conversation. One of my questions to ask you was around your influences, so I, I'm I'm glad that you've you've touched on that, and um, you know certainly you know there's there's so much that that that. I noticed around, um, you know, early in the book, uh, you do talk about um, the autopoietic or self-organizing insight of Lovelock and Margulis as as well, which is obviously uh, important um, to this, you know, this formulation you have around um, your your own thoughts on Gaia. Um, So, and... The other person you mentioned a number of times in the book is Joanna Macy, and I noticed that you've you've done um, a lot of work. I, I, I saw you on uh, the Work That Reconnects uh, website. I see you listed as as uh, one of the facilitators of that of that practice, which I think is really amazing work. But before we go a lot further, um, you do use a term that can be kind of shocking and scary to people, including me, um, end times. And as we, it, you know, early in the book, you, you do kind of set up the discussion around, um, hey folks, um, we're in end times, like let's let's examine that and let's talk about what it means and let's look at what we can do acknowledging certain realities and certain outcomes of stuff that humans have been up to for the last, what, 500 years, maybe, or so, or maybe longer. Um, so you also use terms like um, Macy's uh, great turning. Um, I saw a reference to the great dying. I think maybe there was another one as well. So just for context setting purposes here, when you say end times and you talk about the fact that, hey, you know, maybe maybe we should be thinking of the current era as the guy Anthropocene um, rather than than the Anthropocene, which I uh, Anthropocene, I guess, is a better way to say it. Um, so I'd love just, hey, yeah, just help me understand what you mean by end times and just kind of set that context for us.
1: Sure. Um, well, yeah. Um... Let me begin by this. I still have this on my, uh, my browser here. New York Times, a, a brilliant New York Times opinion piece. I think it was uh, uh, yesterday. If I, if I go to another tab, I'm not going to lose you here, I hope. <laughs> I don't think I will. Okay. Um, <clears throat> here it is. New York Times. This was, uh, yeah, it was yesterday. A wonderful piece by Amanda Hess. And here's the headline. Apocalypse When? or yeah, apocalypse when question mark, global warming's endless scroll. Then underneath it says, from don't look up to Greta Thunberg's videos to doomsaying memes, we are awash in warnings that we are almost out of time. But the climate crisis is outpacing our emotional capacity to describe it. And um, I really recommend this, this article. So, so we're
0: we're recording this on February fourth. So that was New York Times uh, February third.
1: Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, as you know, we are the the culture is awash with end of times memes uh, with the word apocalypse, doom, uh, and so on, and you know, for, for good reason. I mean, we're we are, um, you know, we are literally in real time now, uh, not only witnessing, but enacting, participating in and causing the end of a geological age, um, actually the end of not only the like 12,000 year Holocene, which began at the end of the last ice age and uh, during which, of course, all of recorded history uh, happened. Um, you know, the agricultural revolution, the first cities and so on. Everything that, that for which we have any records uh, apart from, you know, cave paintings and, and other archaeological artifacts has happened during the Holocene. And that is, is over, actually. The Holocene is over. But not only the Holocene. The Holocene is just the last phase of a 66 million year geological epoch, the Cenozoic, which began after the last mass extinction when the dinosaurs went extinct, among other things. Um, that is ending now, too. So, so we are the first mammals, really, uh, certainly the first humans, but the first, first larger mammals, uh, 66 million years ago, there were little shrew-like mammals, but that, that's about it, to be alive during the end of a geological age. Uh, and it's ending because <clears throat> what characterizes the Cenozoic is uh, this unparalleled exfoliation of uh, life forms that um, our species has always known. Even our hominid ancestors always knew. Just these these species are winking out uh in our own time and so many are just right on the edge i mean yes there's still you know a few thousand of the species a uh, few hundred of that species but the habitats upon which they depend uh and the as you know i'm not telling you anything you don't know but the this the system's integrity the integrity of the earth's systems uh is is so uh, challenged now that at any moment these populations could and likely will disappear unfortunately so we're we're in the the sixth mass extinction of species um and uh which is ending the cenozoic so it's it's really is an end time in geological terms um and we could point to other ends like that we can only hope for like the end of of capitalism at least as it, I don't I don't hold too much hope for that but we're in late capitalism and certainly the, the, the structure that has uh, dominated the political economy and, and the, the world uh, the organization of the of the planet over the past century uh, fed largely by fossil fuels that's coming to an end. So so many things are ending uh, all at once and and they're all systemically of course related to each other um but, and so we could also ask uh, what else is ending <clears throat> the the dream of uh the the modern enlightenment dream of endless progress of uh, a certain vision of human perfectibility that you know was is, is eurocentric of course and largely white and uh, male so so patriarchy uh this is something that we can only hope is maybe ending i mean it's still very very vigorous and uh doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon, but, um, there, there are things that are at least that are, are, are no longer, we know they're no longer sustainable and they're actually killing the planet like patriarchy, uh, capitalism, uh, to name those two certain forms of, you know, well, racism, these things are not ending, but we, we feel that they need to end. They need to go under, uh, if we're to, um, you know, if not avoid, at least uh, modulate uh, the the other endings that that are happening.
0: I recently uh, talked with Fritjof Capra, and fascinating conversation. No surprise there. And he, in this, in his new book, he um, includes a lot of essays that that go back 30, 40 years. And I asked him about some of the predictions or some of his ideas about, you know, maybe 1986, maybe something he wrote in 1986, you know, how are we doing with some of these things? He was very optimistic of change and he was optimistic that, um, uh, the, uh, the way that we would, the path forward was being forged and, you know, how are we doing with that? And, uh, uh. He commented that yes now in in twenty twenty two he does he, he the signs are there they it has been perhaps slow, but so some of the things that you talk about uh when you talk when you mentioned end end times and I think that um you know it probably is a scary term, and it should be because a lot of things are ending that shouldn't, but some things are ending that should end as well, so you know there's there's reason to be at least a little bit proud of. Of some of that work, but, but we're not done by any means. So bringing this, tying this to consciousness, my, this is an area where I have little expertise, but I did learn a little bit about the evolution of consciousness uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, so I appreciate this opportunity to brush up a little bit, but early in the book, and I think this is really important, just the context that you just set, you you, one of your chapters is called Gaia and a Second Axial Age, which I found really interesting, but it might be helpful for listeners to hear from you just a little bit about what, well, what was the first axial age and and what's the second axial age? Why are we maybe in it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, this the um, this idea of an axial age was proposed by the uh, German, 20th century German uh, philosopher and psychologist Karl Jaspers. Um and it's the idea that uh, quite miraculously, or mysteriously, wondrously, at, uh, at least, um, starting around the eighth century uh, before the common era, and depending upon where you're going to cut it, you know, lasting till around let's say the the third century before the common era, and you know, particularly focused around let's say the year 500 BCE we see this simultaneous uh, emergence of uh, spiritual, religious, philosophical teachers and communities. Uh, For instance, in Greece, we see the pre-Socratic philosophers and then Socrates and Plato um, who give birth to uh, the Greek philosophical and therefore the the Western philosophical tradition. But in India, we have uh, the Buddha uh, with the Giving rise to the Buddhist tradition, we have Mahavira with Jainism. Uh, we might have Zoroaster in, around that time as well in, in Persia. We have um, some of the major uh, Hebrew prophets in Israel. We have Confucius and Lao Tzu in in China. Um, so, and these, and none of these people knew about the others, right? And yet, they're all they're all popping up within a century or two of each other, and. Each of them is proposing <clears throat> their own version of a key insight, and the insight is that the human being has the potential to uh, intuit and to uh, think, and therefore to act in a way that is uh, in harmony with certain universal ethical and spiritual values or principles. You know whether you call that the Tao or or. Uh, the arche, or the the idea for Plato, or the Dharma, uh, or Torah, um, they're all different inflections of a of a common uh, intuition and of an aspiration towards, let's say, the universal a universality, which allowed these people, for one thing, to turn a critical gaze on their own cultures, to question authority. Um, as the Hebrew prophets did, and Socrates did to his own demise, you know, having having to uh, drink hemlock for challenging the uh, the aristocracy and and so on. Um, <clears throat> so this is and and these these critical traditions were also deeply spiritual traditions, which gave rise to the world religions as well as the the major philosophical traditions. So that's the first axial age. And um, you know Christianity, for instance, represents in its origins a kind of hybrid of, of the Greek and the Hebrew strands of that first axial mutation of consciousness. Now Jaspers said that in, this is like a fold point or an axis around which the whole of, of subsequent history uh, turns. Um, and um, that indeed seems to be the case. And So one of the things I tried to do in my previous book, uh, Coming Home, The Birth and Transformation of the Planetary Era, was to try to understand how the modern period, which um, Edgar Morin, uh, drawing from Heidegger, also calls the Planetary Era, which began around 500 years ago, can be understood not as... Just a more or less accidental development, a mutation which challenged what came before, superstition of the Middle Ages and so on. But uh, is actually an organic development out of the first Axial Age. And we know that um, the modern period, the way it developed, particularly through science, technology and uh, capitalism is the main driver for the accelerating planetary catastrophe in the making with mass extinction, runaway climate change, mass inequality, and so on. So, um, having that in the background, several thinkers, beginning with Thomas Berry uh, and Ewert Cousins, Uh, proposed this idea that we are currently, I mean, they were writing, they were saying this in in the 1980s, but we are even more so now currently experiencing or witnessing the development of the second axial age, of a a second axial age. In other words, a mutation in consciousness in the human experience of itself and the world which is of the same order as the first axial age uh, and uh, which might hold the promise of, uh, of addressing the, uh, you know, what is clearly deficient uh, and uh, unsustainable that has arisen out of modernity, which itself is grounded in the first axial age. And, you know, what, what neither of them did, though, was, uh, to my mind, uh, was to understand that the Second Axial Age, now what is the Second Axial Age, for selection? <laughs> second Axial Age uh, is one where a new set of uh, ultimate values become clearly articulated and serve as a, uh, an organizing pivot around which a new consciousness on a planetary scale can organize itself. And the, you know, this new organizing center actually is the planet itself, where I would say herself, is Gaia herself. Now, this is not a new idea. I mean, we, we you know, ever since uh, the first Earthrise uh, image came back from the Apollo missions and was widely disseminated on the first Earth day in uh, 1970, Uh, and with the the subsequent emergence of the environmental movement and but certainly in our own time with the growing ecological consciousness there uh, are so many groups communities individuals traditions which recognize that uh, the earth itself Gaia herself needs to become the focal point of a of an of a New worldview. I mean it's arguably the only foundation for a worldview. The world can only be, you know, what other foundation can we think of for a worldview than than the world itself? So this is uh, the basic idea of a second axial age. Other people give it different names, like Joanna Macy uh has been and David Corden speak of the Great Turning, for instance. Um, we can think of um well what Fritchoff uh in, in his second book the turning point right this turning point again is is the this image of an axis around which uh, uh around which a mutation of consciousness is is uh, being catalyzed and it's a turning point from you know from the so-called old paradigm to the new paradigm this is how it used to be uh, spoken of in the 1990s new paradigm thought um and the new paradigm the new sciences of course are typically systems oriented and um getting back to your your earlier comments uh kevin uh with systems theory i mean systems thinking to my mind has really come into its own uh in our time through earth system sciences i mean it's it's and and this wouldn't have happened uh, as you know uh, were it not for james lovelock and gaia theory since um, you know this living planet it, with its unparalleled uh, uh, generativity, self-organizing generativity is the is the paradigm case for systems thinking. So the, the second axial age is another way of speaking of this sort of mutation of consciousness that people have been intuiting for a long time. It's actually you know people spoke of the Aquarian age, let's say um uh in the new age movement um uh jung s- spoke of a new ion and uh, the changing of the gods so people have intuited this happening for quite some time but it's really only now i think that um the the situation is dire enough uh and there's a critic a large enough critical mass of individuals and communities resonating together that um, I'm seeing real indications of this second axial age unfolding Mm. in our time.
0: Well, you know, this is definitely when my ears perked up and, and I, you know, noticed, um, a real sort of systems sensibility coming, coming through, um, one thing you write in, uh, this chapter, um, is the. The second axial age is marked by what could be described as third order participatory and re-embedded metacognition and a new planetary radical mythospeculation. Love that word. Um, but you go on to say it re-embeds the human subject into the living earth and cosmos. Um, and then you also say the second age, a second axial age is constituted by an awareness in a growing network of individuals and communities, like you said, that we live in that time when earth itself begins its adventure of conscious self-awareness. And so it's that sort of embedding the, the human into um, into the living earth. That's, that's really what I took to, when, when you use the, the, the term Gyanthropocene, Gyanthropocene, and the, uh, later in the book, when you talk about, um, uh, c- uh communion of subjects, and I'll, I'll let you just talk a little bit more about that, because I, I know that that comes from, um, comes from someone else. So I'd love you to just kind of go into that a little bit and talk about how that was sort of also maybe part of the, the aha, you know, moments you had that have kind of led you to this.
1: Mm. Yeah. I love that, that term uh, from Thomas Berry. Um, Yeah, who says that so much turns on on us learning how to see uh, Earth and cosmos, including our own bodies and ourselves, not as a collection of objects, which is how, of course, uh, late capitalism um, wants us to see the world uh, in order to commodify it. So not as a collection of objects, but as a communion of subjects. And so, what you know, what that means um, to be a subject rather than merely an object. I mean, it's not to say that that there aren't objects. Yes, there are objects. But if we if we recognize that the objects, first and foremost, of course, all of our brothers and sisters, our human brothers and sisters, but also our other than human uh, kin, um, all of the animals and plants, but you know we can go further than that too you know the land as a whole as aldo leopold might might call it which includes the air and the water the rivers the mountains um that these are subjects in the sense that they have their own interiority uh, they have their own intrinsic value they have their own uh, they participate each in their own way in in the great mystery you know, and um so if we can, you know, we can think that uh, it obviously helps if we can have an experience of it. And I think this is one of the things that you know my my early actually psychedelic initiation helped me uh, uh, have that kind of experience. I mean, i would had it in other contexts, and I, I I do now, but that's certainly one way that one one can um, get a glimpse of it. So, um, yeah, beautiful phrase, and I'm so grateful to Thomas Berry and my colleague uh, Brian Swim. Uh, uh, from whom I've uh, borrowed, you know, learned that phrase and, and uh, I'm inspired by it.
0: Yeah, it, beautiful. Um, so the the subtitle of the book is On the Threshold of Planetary Initiation. And so I'd like you to talk about that, really what, what that means. Um, and then there's a chapter... Midway through the book called "The Paradox of Planetary Initiation," which I really appreciated. So I'd love you to, you know, give us kind of a, an overview of what you mean by planetary initiation, and then kind of go into some of those paradoxes that you explore and talk a bit about those.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, well, again, my uh, just to to uh, show gratitude to my uh, my colleagues. Well. Yeah. So Richard Tarnas, for instance, uh, for for several decades now, has been writing and, and occasion, uh, writing and, and lecturing, and occasionally um, or often actually referring to our times as one of a uh, collective initiation, a kind of planetary initiation, and um, so the you know, the idea of initiation is is um, used to be common to the human experience, it still is common to most indigenous cultures. Um, so the, up until, well, probably up until the Axial Age, actually, the first Axial Age. But, uh, but even then, it, initiations persisted um, until the modern period and the later modern period. And these initiations, uh, particularly so-called rites of passage, which are forms of initiation that mark the transition of an individual from one phase of the life cycle and one particular role within the community to another one. And most, you know, most commonly there are, let's say, uh, puberty initiations, um, uh, for males especially, but there are other initiations for warriors, for priests, for shamans. Um, marriage is an initiation, uh, funeral ceremonies are initiations, as are baptisms and so on. So there are many points of, of transformation during the life cycle that, that used to be and still are in certain cultures marked by rites of passage. And these rites of passage all have the same deep structure. Um, made most maybe um, people are most people are familiar with Joseph Campbell and his uh, his teachings on the hero's journey. In the myth of the hero, so the the idea of the hero's journey is a mythic example of the same deep structure of rites of passage or rites of initiation, where you have a movement from uh, an old identity, a separation from that identity, passing into a so-called liminal phase, and the liminal phase is the betwixt and between phase. The word liminal comes from the Greek "limen," which means threshold so the liminal phase is actually the threshold phase, the threshold between the old identity and the new identity. Now, the thing about rites of passage, for most of them, is that a successful transition through this liminal phase involves an encounter with death, in effect, a near-death experience. And you know what has to die, of course, is the old identity, the old attachments, Um, The old stories, the old stories that one had of of oneself. And it's during this liminal phase, uh, this threshold phase, that there is the possibility, at least, of contacting uh, a deeper wisdom that is traditionally um, mediated by the elders and is also mediated by the sacred symbols uh, that the, the elders can transmit um, or if not elders, there'll be other spirit guides, and they could, you know, be animal guides, or they could be ancestors, or they could be uh, other kinds of beings. And through that contact with what Jung would call the archetypal realm or you know, the transpersonal psyche, um, there is the possibility of uh, fashioning the new identity, but only if the encounter with death is successfully negotiated. Um, and if it is, then there's a kind of rebirth to the new identity. So these are the three basic you know phases that are actually the same as the Hegelian dialectic. So you can see why you know I, I, I naturally understood that, that structure coming out of Jung and Hegel. Um, so that's the threshold upon which the the whole Earth community is poised right now. Um, not only the humans, but the other than humans, the biosphere itself, is being drawn into a kind of collective near-death experience. And you know, uh, for better or worse, it's it's the humans who are holding the cards in terms of um, determining the likely fate of of the other than humans, of the rest of the Earth community. Uh, so. It's it's up to us to figure out how we can negotiate this threshold, how we can come to terms with the the prospect of our own death, uh, both individually and collectively. Um, you know, and, and presumably one of the ways we can do that is to feel into, to intuit the new identity that is trying to be born. And and the the basic proposition, which is, of course, not unique to me, is that the new identity wanting to be born is a new kind of human that whose whose sense of self and behavior is in deeper harmony with the ways of Gaia. Um, But I go further and say that it is that and the new identity that is struggling to be born is actually Gaia herself. The planet herself is striving to wake up to herself through the human
0: yeah that that really struck me. I I mean I had to read over I think pages like 160 where I don't know 164 through 166 a lot to kind of <laughs> get this. Um but what my my takeaway was just this intrinsic uh just how connected we are and we're going through this together. And so I kind of went, well, damn it. I mean, it's 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 kind of our fault, but, you know, at the same time, you know, this this statement that um, you make Earth or Gaia herself is waking up to herself through this human transformation, but in some sense transcending the human as well. That's the one that I had to keep going back and really try to make sense of because, I don't know, it, it, it felt kind of um, – egocentric or human centric to me. And there's something about, I didn't really want that dependency or that responsibility, or I'm not sure exactly how that, that
1: struck me. Mm, I hear you. Yeah. Well, um, of course, a lot of people uh, have that same feeling with the, the idea of the Anthropocene. Okay. So we're, we've, we've entered the Anthropocene, the age of the human well, what kind of hubris is that? right? Um, and of course, but people say, but look, you know, um, it's true. There is no longer any aspect of earth that doesn't uh, bear the imprint of the human you know, from, from the chemistry of the atmosphere of the oceans and so on. And humans are uh, in, controlling, not very well, but let's say determining the, the fate of the entire earth community. So, For better or worse we we have entered that kind of age which you know i understand why people want to call it the anthropocene but what i'm proposing with this idea of the guy anthropocene is not only that the human is being called to actually redefine itself uh, as a living member of this living planet Uh, so that's one thing which which sort of takes the edge off the anthropocentrism because it's not so much we're entering the age of the human, we're entering the age where the human has to define, redefine itself. And, uh, um, yeah. And, um, and since the human is not other than earth, right, we are an emergent property of Gaia. So if, if, if we are trying to redefine ourselves as a living member of this living planet, then surely Gaia, that's what Gaia is doing. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. and I think the other thing that popped into my mind when I read this section was, quite often you'll hear people say, "Well, Earth's going to be just fine," and you know, we we if humans go extinct tomorrow, Earth will find a way forward. Um, so with or without us, and and so, but but in a different, forever changed form, obviously. Um, but yeah, the other thing that I wondered, you know, the, the near death experience, um, phrase is one, it's another, I must say a little bit of a shocking term in, in to come across in the book. And, uh, it, it made me kind of wonder, you know, in the context of initiation, um, do we really have to go like all the way to the brink before we can have the necessary transformation? Like that, it does that. Is 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 that kind of what you're saying here? Is like we're we're we're, we're like are, are humans so I don't know are we so stupid that that's how like and even if we do go all the way to the brink and and we come back from it have we what have we learned from that?
1: Yeah, I know that's you're right on there, Kevin. I mean, well, what we can say from looking at um, traditional rites of passage is that if the encounter with death is not uh, compelling enough, which means often that there has to be a real risk of death, and um, or at least enough, you know, pain. <laughs> um, then the initiation is is not successful. Um, now, do we really need to go through it? Well, it certainly seems like uh, if we imagine that there were, if, if, if we imagine that there were no mass extinction, no climate chaos. Um then there would be absolutely no reason to stop to change business no there'd be absolutely no reason to find an alternative to business as usual right uh so that much seems clear that business as usual uh has so much momentum so much power that it will not stop it 's on a you know a uh, negative feedback loop um self-reinforcing feedback loop uh, that won't be stopped, cannot be stopped unless it's either self-destructs or unless we manage to stop it somehow. And it seems like the only way that we can, we, I say we, you know, those who have the power to do something about it can be motivated to uh, try to change the course of of the ship is if there is enough fear and anxiety and grief. And of course we defend so strongly against fear and grief. Um, and this is one of the things, you know, one of the great uh, deep value of Joanna Macy's work who you mentioned earlier, uh, the way she has helped me see the uh, the necessity and, and um, deep sociotherapeutic value of learning to open ourselves to the fear and the grief. Um, yeah. So if we manage to do that, yeah, there, there's no guarantee, first of all, that, that we will make it through on the one hand. On the other hand, and this is what I try to get at in the last chapter of the book, is, you know, I first of all, I, I am totally committed to doing everything that we can to halt the destruction to slow down the collapse if we are headed for collapse at the same time i am not um pinning my motivation or my commitment to do whatever i can on any sort of probability of of positive out of success or positive outcome um because for this you know for one reason as things continue to get bleaker and bleaker um, I would have no motivation to act and neither would I have any um, ground to uh, stay in the drama uh, and to um, delight in what I can delight in, to experience love and gratitude and, and so on uh, if I think that, that uh, it's hopeless, right? So, you know, this raises the question, why? why 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 care why try to why continue walking through this fire of initiation if it seems like there's not much of a chance of of success right these, these are such profound questions and I, I only you know offer some of my own you know preliminary intuitions in this last chapter as a kind of uh third way between hope and despair uh, which um, you know, which may or may not resonate with with readers depending on their own experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, you definitely I I, I felt that very strongly in the last chapter, um, which by the way is called "Living in End Times Beyond Hope and Despair." And I I think that you know I've had some uh, experience with uh, Joanna Macy's work and the. Uh, the pieces that you you were talking about, business as usual, and and just the, her her notion of active hope, and you know the the grief that one has to sort of experience in this kind of threshold time as well um, as being so so important. I think that this is the other piece that this th- this is really what's missing from a lot of the systems literature. I recently sent a WhatsApp to Ray Ison, and I don't know if you know Ray. Um, Ray is uh, a very uh, experienced uh, systems thinker. He's at um, Open University, um, where he looks after the systems thinking in, in practice um, curriculum, and his his most recent book with Ed Straw. I, I talked to them here on this on this podcast was the hidden power of systems thinking, and you know I think that it's a it's this amazing framework that they offer, uh, something they call a governance diamond, and uh, in this sort of reimagined governance diamond, they they put the biosphere right at the very beginning at uh, sorry at the the middle that's situated in the middle of of how you know this governance um, model, and I was reminded of it when i um was reading in your book uh you refer to moran's uh, idea of four runaway engines science technology economy and profit and i then reflected back on on eisen's work and what i WhatsApped him about a few weeks ago was was i feel like there's something else i feel like there's this other piece that that some of my work is sort of leading me to wonder uh, because I always wonder what I do with that system's model with 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 his new um, governance diamond. And part of it was really reconciling how I feel about it. how I like what I'm the hopelessness I feel when I look at this house of cards, really, that you know, these stacked, all these interconnected, pieces, systemic, you know pieces, whether it's uh, legal, corporate, media, technology, uh, human um, social enterprise uh, it, and, and just it it makes me feel anxious. It makes a lot of readers I think of, of that kind of work anxious because it makes you realize, you know the the hidden power of systems thinking is a very positive kind of there, there's a lot of potential, but just this this hidden power really underscores the deep rooted connectedness of all of these things, and where do you even begin to fix it, right? And so I think that you know when you bring this this uh, this book is very complimentary, in fact, to um, his book. Be- there it's a good companion to it because it allows us to kind of go deeper into sort of understanding these things and and how we actually need to maybe approach them um, emotionally and not just like, not just with the head, um, you know, systems thinking is very much cognitive process of understanding intellectually these connections. And I feel like this gives us an opportunity to, to understand them more
1: intuitively or you know less with the head oh well thank you for saying that because because you know i realize the book is very dense and and and, and it is in the head but i try to at least um you know make the head <laughs> as we move into the head i try to make it transparent to 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 the 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 wider and deeper world in which the head is embedded <laughs> including the heart and um so a yeah so a recurring theme is is that um, you know if we can uh, learn to even transiently experience our sense of self or identity as being uh, organically continuous with the living body of this living earth, um, that's sort of a spatial spatially if we can if we can. It, expand and extend our sense of self uh, to the entire earth community and we can do that temporally as well the more we can do that and try to make it a kind of aspiration and a habit recognizing that it may only come for a few moments in a day and that's fine you know we're we we do not have to to uh to wear it as a kind of horsehair, uh, or, or flagellate ourselves and and not being able to do this all the time. But to the extent that we can do that and and make it also an organizing principle of our thinking, and this is where the, where I think it's so important for systems thinking to really, um, deepen into Gaia, uh, and earth as the paradigm case. Um, so no, no longer. Yeah. So I mean, yes we, we need computers computer modelings and neural networks and so on but if we can if we can see how this living earth is organized and and um, uh, deepen into into Gaia in that way not only I think will it enrich and continue to to uh, stimulate systems thinking but it will uh, I think enliven thinking uh, by uh, reinforcing the always already you know Ontological connection between our thinking and our our uh, the, these these bodies and our hearts, which are part of the pulsing body of this living earth.
0: Mm, beautiful. So, um, I think that's probably a good place to end this. What I hope is just our first discussion. Um, that's a beautiful place to 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 wrap it up. So, I want to thank you so much for joining me here, and. I, I've really appreciated the conversation I, I think our listeners will too and you know the the systems thinkers who are maybe aligned to um, you know some of the i guess more traditional ways of sort of looking at at systems thinking really ought to kind of explore this pathway i think I think it's a very interesting uh, complement and a way to sort of empower us maybe to, to take systems thinking and, and really bring it in a way that uh, we need to, um, tackle some of these, these issues. And, and, you know, you've brought up some pretty heavy ones. Um, I, I think that it, you know, we need to look at uh, how we build our capacity, uh, some of these internal capacities, um, beyond, you know, just the, I suppose, the, the more academic uh, uh, approach. So I, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It was a real delight.
0: This is Kevin Lindsay. You've been listening to my discussion with Sean Kelly about his new book, Becoming Gaia, on the threshold of planetary initiation. Thanks for joining. And until next time, so long.